Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with modern-day New York City jazz pianist and composer Ben Winkleman. He was raised in Melbourne, Australia, and now resides in the jazz capital of the world, New York City. He talked about a wide array of topics with Neon Jazz, from learning jazz from Kevin Hayes to what is going on these days, how he teaches, his sound that is a blend of Afro-Cuban and Brazilian music, stride piano, and early 20th century classical music. It's a great mix, along with much, much more. Dig this interview, my friends. How's it going? Hey, good, man. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me. Oh, thank you. So I'm going to go ahead and start off here and ask you, I know you're a busy man, what has been going on lately? I got a new record out lately called The Knife on um, OA2 Records. It's um, It's been five years or so since the last one came out. This is my, my fourth album. Um and I guess in those uh, previous five years, I, I moved to New York five years ago, and there's been um, it's taken a while to settle in. I guess um, the easiest way to summarize the last five years would be I've been settling into life in New York, which uh, has taken longer than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it has. Um, I mean, I was hoping for challenges, and um, yeah, I guess the city throws a lot of stuff at you that you um, you have to field. One of the nice things that's that happened uh, after moving here was I got a gig playing for uh, for a black church, playing gospel music, uh, which I'd never done before. And um, that's been um, key in um, stating myself here, but also kind of opened up um, another musical universe that I wasn't really aware of yet. And, um, and it's pushed me to kind of develop some, some musical language that I didn't have. We we don't have that in Australia. There's no African American church in Australia. It's something I um, I saw in the biographies of my heroes, but not not something that I really thought I would get to uh, experience up close in a in a first hand way every week. That's been a nice thing. You know, you're from Melbourne, Australia. What was it like growing up there to give you this love of not just music but jazz specifically? Well, the, um, I'll just fill you in on the background before arriving in Melbourne. I was I was born in Eugene, Oregon. Both my parents are American, so technically I kind of am American. All my extended family is American. My parents moved to Perth for what was going to be two years for my dad to teach at a university there, and, and they were going to come back after that. They just didn't end up coming back. And then um, when I was 12, we, we moved to the, to the east coast to Melbourne. So I grew up in, in Australia from just before the age of three. So let's see, Melbourne, jazz. I think the early earliest experiences were, were um, my dad taking me to see some music. He had a few uh, jazz records in his collection. He had um, an Oscar Peterson record and a John Coltrane record. But the way I remember it was that there wasn't the same kind of pervasive jazz culture that you might find in um, an American city, and, and especially not here. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking pre-internet days. I think I was able to start getting into it by listening to radio programs, and uh, I, I was taking piano and drum lessons, and eventually I had some teachers to help me to start to get oriented. But it took a while to piece it together. I mean, uh, I could, I, I have this memory of my mum going to the U.S. She, you know, she would go on on trips nearly every year, and I'd tell her, um, oh, I'd, you know, she she would bring me back records, and and I I, I can remember telling her, I, I heard, you know, I'm not sure if it actually does exist, but I heard there's a recording that Duke Ellington, Charles Mingus, and Max Roach made together, and I. I wrote all the names down and she went to a record store to try and find it. A few months later, she came back with, you know, the vinyl thing. And, um, you know, 
yeah, I, I remember it not being like a really straightforward thing to kind of get into it. It took a little bit of researching. So that had to be a big thrill to actually see this album that you wanted in vinyl and get it, you know? Yeah. The way I remember it was that I, I would then listen to that record a lot. You know, it wasn't like I had, um, I, I feel like now we have so much music at our fingertips. We can kind of hear more or less whatever we want just by jump, jumping on the internet. I don't remember it being like that then. But I, I suppose that at some point I was lucky to get some, some some teachers who helped orient me a little more and I guess to learn to play jazz at a... At a it was this, I guess um, I had this teacher, uh, Mickey Tucker. He's um, a piano player who played with the, the Messengers and he'd, he'd moved out to, to Melbourne in the early 90s. So I was lucky to get to study with him. There was an Australian pianist, Paul Grabowski, I got to study with as well. That, that was really great. And then, um, then I did a... Um, an undergrad degree, like a, a jazz course in Australia, um, got out and started playing playing jazz gigs. Also a lot of salsa gigs. I um I kind of fell into playing in, in salsa bands while I was still at college, and and that's been an interest that I've, I've kind of stuck with ever since. So when you were a kid, did what did you want to be when you grew up? Was it music, or was there other trains you had growing up? Well, you know, I had different ideas. My parents were both academics, and they kind of pushed that, and I, I initially expected I'd be some kind of academic, probably something to do with mathematics, but at some point I just decided, no, I you know, I, I enjoy this more, I, this is what I want to do. You know, I've, I've never failed at anything yet, I, I have figured, how hard could it be? You know, jazz piano, there's got to be a way to do it. Um, yeah. I, I maybe I under, underestimated uh how difficult it is. Yeah, I, I guess I took this decision at about um, 15 and, and, and stuck with it since then. So you touched on Mickey Tucker at the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne. I'm going to kind of jump into your master's program at uh, SUNY Purchase in New York. You studied with Kevin Hayes. What was that experience like? Great. Sometimes also crushing. I mean, he, he calls it as he sees it, you know, doesn't mince words, but... Um, he was also supportive. It was it was great to be able to uh, to see him every week and, and keep getting input. I feel like I had a little bit of a reordering of priorities after spending so much time with him. He's someone who's, who very much emphasises, you know, focusing on the important parts of music, figuring out what you're actually trying to say with it, leaving out all the stuff that's extraneous. I suppose I sometimes had a, a tendency to to rely, you know, I think a lot of improvisers do this. You know, we we, we learn patterns, we learn the, the things that we we think are going to work, and inject them into our improvisations. He had a sharp eye for for that, and kind of you know encouraged me to more you know live in the moment, so to speak, when you're when you're improvising. I mean, I guess jazz can be a lot of things. You know, it could be to do with the, the play of ideas or the you know expression of emotion. He's he's very much about like music is about feeling. Like try to um, connect with what you're feeling and, and, and always stay with that when you're playing. He's a really interesting musician too. I've, I've gone to see him a lot since being here and that was, that was a good experience to be able to do so much study with him and, and beneficial, I think. So for your master's program, we kind of, th- this next part is kind of getting into the meat and marrow of your career. And since 2005, you've had three very well-received albums with your trio on the Jazz Head label. Talk to me about what it's been like to release these albums and kind of have yourself really entrenched in a career in jazz in New York City? Let's see, I didn't start putting out records till I was maybe around 30 or nearly 30. I'd, I'd, um, I guess through my 20s, I'd been more the sort of musician who waited for the phone to ring and took the opportunities as they came up. 
um, something changed around that time when I realized that I wasn't getting to play the, the music I'd, I most wanted to play and I was going to have to be more proactive about you know, making it happen for myself. So I, um, yeah, I got into this period of um, making recordings, uh, organizing tours, organized some very long tours around Australia. Um, we did that like three or four times. And and I guess, you know, God got yeah, kind of a pretty active band-leading career going in Australia. After moving to New York, that kind of um, resets more or less, I, I felt. It's like if, if you, you come to New York, you basically start again from scratch, I think. I'm trying to build it back up again. <laughs> that's yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the travel part of this, going to festivals. You had some extensive touring in Australia. What is it like to get out on the road? Do you love going out and seeing the world and getting out and delivering your music that way? Yeah, it's, um, that's really nice. One of the nicest things is you, I guess, in my experience so far, that's been the only way to, to get out with the same couple of people and, and really be a band, like, like play, play the material every night, play together every night. Um, I think that's when something really starts to develop. Um, you know, I, I, I don't feel like that's as common an experience now as, as maybe it was in, you know, in, in the days when, when jazz was a more mainstream music and, and working bands were, were touring a lot. So yeah, it's a it's a really great experience. I would I would love to have it all the time. So in 2008, you got to go to what, you know, there was a lot of people that may realize this, and a lot of people that may not. Japan's gonzo about jazz. What was it like to go over there and deliver music to them? Oh great, yeah, Japan Japan was a lot of fun. Um, we played at this festival on Hokkaido Island um, in the north. It was it was great. I would love to go back. Yeah, I love Japan. So over your career, you've been awarded grants, you've gotten awards, award nominations. So I want to ask you, was there a specific award that kind of threw you off balance? Not a favorite one, but just one of those awards that you were like, wow, that's cool. That's just something that kind of hit you in the right way. Let's see. Well, the, the second one was a win. The, well, the first one was a nomination. I guess the first one was the one I was I was most surprised that it was getting the kind of attention it was getting in Australia because it was my first time doing anything like that. I didn't I didn't really know how it would be received. Yeah, but, but I, I didn't know if I was, like, really thrown off balance. Um, I, I guess it was just, it was nice that it, you know, had a fairly good reception. No, and, and, and I want to kind of trail off of that into a little bit of your sound, your voice. And you have a blend of Afro-Cuban, Brazilian, stride piano, and early 20th century classical music. How have you managed to take all of those aspects and genres and make it into your sound? Most of those things, most of those um, elements or styles are, um, you know, I've encountered in, in my playing life. And I guess the way I feel about it is if, like, I'm playing salsa gigs two or three times a week, it kind of makes sense to me when I sit down to write music that something of that is going to kind of come through into what I want to write. And and I guess the, the same, you know, so if I was working on a bunch of, um, you know, 20th century classical pieces, you know, I feel like some of that is going to seep in at some point. So, um, I don't know. I, I feel like jazz can be an inclusive kind of art form where it's it's possible to chat in these other elements if you can find a way to do it without being too contrived about it, 
I guess I guess there's a line somewhere where it, you know it, it is difficult to use different styles without it being too silly. So I guess I, I guess I sit down and, and when I'm writing music, you know, just try to come up with ideas until they make sense to me and think, yeah, this this is this is something I like. There was a point when I started playing with this drummer Ben Vanderwall in in Australia, and um, I hadn't really written many like Latin jazz pieces until I started playing with him and then I re- when I, I realized like hey, he can do that he's got that in his background I started to write around you know the stuff he could do so I guess part of it grew out of forming this you know playing relationship with, with, with this drummer Ben and he also um I, had, I hadn't really been listening to um well I hadn't really tried playing any over odd meter clavers yet that was something he got me to start to do at first I couldn't really do it you know Claves that had been altered to fit five four and seven four and nine four, and the more we jammed on them, then I started to write tunes based around them, and, and then it became something I, you know, wanted to keep developing and started to listen to more more to um, you know musicians in New York and around the US who who work with those ideas, Danilo Perez and Miguel Zenon and people like that. Well, another component of what you do as well with the performing. And, you know, the records that you're putting out is that you're a teacher and you've been doing uh, lessons since 96. Give me an idea of what your teaching philosophy is. What do you want to give your students? Um, well, I guess teaching could be a really nice thing. I mean, you're, you're, um, I guess you're help, you're helping people and trying to solve problems. I guess if you can help make something more, um, simple and digestible for them that seems you know, mysterious and complicated. I feel like that's a nice thing to do. My teaching philosophy, yeah, I, I guess it really depends a lot on, on who the student is and, and what they're trying to do. I, I, I think I'm more I deal with it on a case-by-case basis and, and try to figure out what it is they're trying to do and how I can help them to do it. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, and, and speaking of teachers, we've talked about Mickey Tucker and Kevin Hayes and those that have influenced you. Who would you say has taught you the most about music? I guess I, I had Mickey Tucker and Paul Grabowski at a time when I still didn't really know very much. So um, they really gave me a lot of foundational stuff. They were, they were probably the ones who, you know, who made a really big difference. I mean, I had some other ones who, who really um, came down on me hard in other ways. Like I, I had some... You know, another before that who, you know, tried to, you know, kind of finally got me going on a like a proper technical routine. Although, you know, he didn't really give me so much jazz information. He was also an important teacher, this guy, Thomas Spiervak. I also studied uh, classical music a lot through like uh, later on with a, a woman called Linda Kavaris, you know, studying Chopin and, and Ravel and, and Mendelssohn. That was that was really good too. Um, I guess the work I, I did with Kevin, you know, it's uh, that's been great too. But it's um, it's coming at such a, a later stage that we're, we're sort of um, you know dealing with a, a rethinking of uh, musical philosophy rather than the, the nuts and bolts. Well, and and also when it comes to music, the influences you you mentioned that Max Road final when you were younger. Tell me who you would consider your jazz heroes. Who really swayed you? Herbie is still my favorite piano player. I mean, I I have phases where I'm you know, focusing more on someone else, or but uh, he's <laughs> he's the one guy I keep coming back to. Like you know, I loved his 
you know, I first started getting into jazz and, and I still feel like he's he's my favourite now. I mean, I, I still really love that, um, you know, the, all the Miles Quintet recordings that, that he's on and there are lots of others, of course. I mean, I mean, I, um, I checked out all the people like, um, you know, Monk, Bill Evans, Lenny Tristano, you know, Keith, love Keith. You know, love a lot of the people who are active, you know, today, Mel Dow, Kevin Hayes, Danilo, Aaron Parks. Um, I don't know. There's, there's there's so many great ones. A really nice thing about New York is is um, that you get to go and hear them live. Um, I remember I had this moment in my first. Um, you know, I had, I'd only been here six months or something, and I, I kind of paused. I thought, like, in the last ten days, I've heard Keith, Jason Moran, Robert Glasper. Aaron Parks, Ariadne Trujillo, who was um piano player playing with um Pedro Martinez at the time. I think there were a few others. It was like this golden ten day patch where I'd, and I just thought, Wow, like we you know I can't imagine how you could do this anywhere else. That's definitely a power lineup. Speaking of live shows, if you in your list of all of the jazz luminaries that you did, if you could go in a time machine and see one person somewhere, where would you go and who would you see? Uh, it'd have to be that the Miles Quintet with Lane and Herbie, I think. They, uh, yeah, the, it'd have to be that. That's uh, I, I, I still think, even now, that's one of the most exciting groups. Um, yeah. I think, of course, there's many others, but I'd speak one. I guess that's, and know. let me ask you this. So this. It's a simple question, but it packs a punch. Why do you love jazz? <laughs> it's an art form that's got a lot of scope. You know, it could be, um, you know, it, I think I said something before, about, you know, it, it could be to do with the play of ideas. It could be to do with the expression of emotion. I mean, um, it's something that people can kind of bring their own personalities and perspectives to it and 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 it has that flexibility that they can focus on what they think is important. I think that's a nice thing about it. Yeah, I guess it's the the, the flexibility and the and the scope. In some ways though it's it's not it's not so much that it's I love it. I I mean I've had times and I've thought about would it be possible to, to not do it. I mean it it's actually it's more like an addiction. I I think once you get a certain ways into it there's 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 really no way to stop. But I suppose the real the real answer is just that it's I mean I, I can't think of anything else that I would you know, that feels better to do or, or music that feels better to play it's, or, or that interests me more. But yeah, I think I think part of the reason that's true is that it's so um it's so flexible. Let me ask you this. What's the greatest thing about waking up every day for you? Well, when I get up the thing I'm looking forward to is um getting to the piano and, you know, writing music or um or playing. That's what I look forward to most. I'm hoping that I don't have stuff on that's gonna stop me from doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So everybody that you come in contact with, your family, your friends, those that you perform for, everybody has a perception of who Ben is and who they think you are. Who do you think you are? Well, I don't know if it's really possible to uh, to see yourself clearly. I um, I guess one, one thing I think is I'm, I'm essentially someone who's pretty driven, but um, subject to the distractions that uh, come along the way. I um, one, one thing I... I would like for myself is to um, be someone who can really uh, stay focused. Let's say we hook up in, you know, let's say 10 to 15 years from now. 
and I ask you what's been going on, what are you going to want to tell me has happened? I mean, I do hope to have the kind of career that involves, you know, touring and playing, like, concerts, even if they're just semi-formal concerts, releasing albums and so on. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I want to be an active, active in the jazz world, um, active as a band leader. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want all that stuff, and I'm, I hope that I'm going to be able to look back and say that um, I got to do it. I guess maybe more important than that is something a little more elusive to do with that I just, I mean, I hope I continue to grow and develop as a as a musician and an artist. I mean, I'm hard on myself. I, I feel like most people who are um, ambitious about what they do tend to be hard on themselves. I think you want to find that um, that middle ground where you can um, have a little bit of uh, still, uh, still be hard on yourself, but... Uh, still manage to enjoy what you do. That's a perfect way to kind of put things into perspective as we uh, as we end here. Ben, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ben Winkleman for his time, his cool, and all that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.